morning, Living Hope. It's great to be with you today. I'm Frank Page, and you don't know who I am or what I do, and most don't, but I am the president of the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. Is that the same thing as president of the Southern Baptist Convention? No, therein lies confusion. President of the Southern Baptist Convention is elected, non-paid, believe me, two-year job that's primarily public relations. The President Executive Committee, thank God, is paid, permanent, if anything is permanent, uh, role of overseeing the work of the convention on a day-by-day basis. Best way to describe what I do, I'm the lead administrator for the Southern Baptist Convention. My pompous title is President and Chief Executive Officer of the Executive Committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. can't say it in one breath. In fact, it takes three business cards to get all that on there. I was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, 2006-2008, but in 2010 was elected to this role. What does it do? Well, legally, the Southern Baptist Convention exists two days a year when we meet in annual sessions such as recently in Columbus, Ohio. That's where it was. The other 363 days a year, the executive committee does the work for the convention, coordinating, funding, overseeing, those kinds of things. So we are the convention between the sessions. And so we do that work. I don't say ever that the headquarters of the Southern Baptist Convention is in Nashville, our offices are in Nashville. But we believe the headquarters of the conventions in the local church. We are a convention of churches. We gather together 46,498 churches together to do the work of the Lord. Living Hope, you're a part of that number. Largest Protestant denomination on the face of the earth. You're a part of doing a work of God that you don't even know about. It's exciting. I get a front row seat to see where that goes and what it does. You join with other churches in what's called the cooperative program. As you put money into our missions and ministries, it touches people across the globe. Last Sunday, my wife and I were together. Praise God. She's not with me today, but praise God she was with me. Last week, because I was gone for a week, I preached last Sunday morning at the Primera Iglesia Bautista Evangelica de Madrid, España. Where was that? Madrid, Spain. By the way, I spoke on Saturday, the graduation of the seminary there. The building of that seminary was built by money called Lottie Moon Christmas Offering Money that you helped give years ago. That church building was built by volunteers from all over Europe and Southern Baptist Convention. So guess what, Living Hope? You've had a part in that work. Last December, I was in uh, Havana, Cuba. Cuba. A place when the communists took over decided that they would try to stop the church by not allowing any church ever to be built ever again. Well, guess what? People just started churches in their houses. And now there are thousands of churches all over the island of Cuba. And they're on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ, changing the whole island. It was a place where revival is occurring of a biblical nature. I mean, it's amazing. Guess who supports that work in Cuba, Living Hope? You do. Did you know that? Whether you knew it or not, you've been supporting it and are to this day. 
Last May, I was in, I'll tell you, Montreal, Quebec, Canada. It is officially the most unevangelized city on the North American continent. I don't think it will be long. I met with 21 young French Canadian church planters who are on fire for the Lord, planting churches all over that metropolis. Young man sat to my left at supper time. Can't pronounce his name, but his church is La Chapelle in French, meaning the chapel. First year in existence. Average over 700 descendants. Baptized 70 people in their first year. Guess who supports that work? In Montreal, Quebec, Canada, Living Hope, you do. How about that? I just want to encourage you with that word. Maybe you're like me and need some encouragement today. I do. I came here today sad, a little bit angry, in all honesty. I got that side of me. I got a little redneck side to me. But I come discouraged because that which has happened in our nation is very disconcerting to me. Just a few moments ago, you joined with me, and I pledged allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. And I doubt, let me say it possibly, every person in here, I believe, pledged allegiance with their heart. Every person in here would stand and defend that flag. Every person in here, if asked, would give his or her life for this country. I would. You would. But our country has made a decision this week to absolutely disregard the way of the Lord. Not the first time, nor will it be the last time. You may say, well, tolerance was manifest. The slippery slope upon which we have now gone down will lead to consequences that not a soul... Now, many of us knew or felt the court was going to do what the court did do. And some of us had predicted a 5-4 split. But I tell you, no one knows where this is going to lead. For once a nation begins to do what no culture has ever done before, to totally disregard the way of God, whose word, as I said to young homosexual activists this morning on Facebook, whose word is unambiguous and clear, we have indeed embarked on a journey that is disconcerting and discouraging. So do we come in here today and say, woe is me, we're all in trouble. Is there any hope? Well, living hope, guess what? There is hope. But I will tell you this, my friends, listen carefully. Your hope will not be found in the courthouse. And if that's where you thought you were going to get hope, you're wrong. Your hope will not be in the state house. Your hope will not be in the courthouse. Your hope will not be in the schoolhouse, the courthouse, the state house. It will not be found in any of those places. I will, you will not find hope in the White House. You'll find only hope in one place. And that is what we're going to talk about today. So I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to two chapters. Some of you are slow. It'll take you a while. 1 Samuel 17, 1 Chronicles 20. It's in the Old Testament. Just go back to the beginning of the Bible and turn right for a little way. Now, I'm going to tell you a story first that connects. It's found in American history. Before there was an America. Before there was a Kentucky. And by the way, I love Kentucky. I'm invited to speak 
in this state more than any other state. And I love that. Before there was the United States in 1755, remember two dates. Young scholars, remember these dates. July 10, February 20, 1755. There was a war going on called the French and Indian Wars. It was the British who controlled the 13 colonies at that time and their Indian allies who fought with the, against the French and their Indian allies. Now, aligned with the British were the American militia commanded by a colonel named George Washington. By the way, in that battle, in those battles, in that war, fought a man named Daniel Boone, who is very famous in Kentucky. When Kentucky was ended with an E, not a Y. By the way, he knew George Washington, and he fought in that war before coming west to the wilderness and established Boonesboro and other places. Well, enough of Kentucky history. Some of you need to know it a little better than you do. Well, it was not going well for the British and the Americans and their Indian allies at all. It was going very difficult. So the British called in a new man named William Craddock who came in February 20, 1755 to take over the British effort. He did his obligatory visits in uh, the New England area, and visited with a man, a statesman, whose name was Benjamin Franklin. And he said to Franklin, Sir, said, uh, this war has not been going well for you in the past, but don't worry, I'm here now. In fact, I shall go take the fort over at Duquince, the fort at Frontenac, and then I shall take Niagara. Don't worry, I shall have this war over in a few days. Huh. You say confidence? That's one way to put it. Arrogance? That's another way to put it. Hubris is another word for that. Well, Franklin said to him, said, Mr. Braddock, said, uh, I appreciate your confidence, but you need to understand, Mr. Braddock, said, the French and their Indian allies do not fight like armies you're accustomed to. They will ambush you, Mr. Braddock. You need to be aware of this. He discounted his advice totally. He goes out and he talks to his second in command. In those days, they called it an aide-de-camp. His name, Colonel George Washington, head of the America, American militia. Washington said to Braddock, Mr. Braddock, please listen to what Mr. Franklin said. His advice is important. The French and their Indian allies do not fight like you're accustomed to. Please pay attention, Mr. Braddock. To which Braddock said, the French and their Indian allies may be a formidable foe to your raw American militia. But to the king's regular and disciplined troops, they shall hardly be able to make an impression. Ambition, confidence, courage, arrogance, hubris. Well, I told you he came on February 20th, 1755. July 8th, 1755, at about 10 o'clock in the morning, near what is modern-day Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It was just a trading post then. The French and their Indian allies ambushed the British Americans and their Indian allies. It was a terrible defeat for the British that day. In fact, history records that almost two out of every three British and American soldiers lost their lives in that one battle. 
Heaviest casualties were taken by the Americans. Braddock himself was mortally wounded, died just a few days later. What's the moral of that story? You know it, don't you? Never underestimate the power of the enemy. Never underestimate how the enemy can defeat us. Never underestimate what the enemy wishes to do to your life, to your church, to your family, to this nation. We should never underestimate the power of the enemy. To use good thoughts to turn a nation in the wrong direction. All we're hearing now is how we ought to accept love and tolerance and ignore the Word of God and ignore history and ignore democracy. We can use good thoughts, but the enemy uses many tactics and many strategies. My friends, that's what we're going to see in God's Word today. Beware of the enemy. Watch for his footprints. Never underestimate his strength and his power. We're going to see two overwhelming and separate perspectives in God's Word today. One is found in 1 Samuel. One is found in 1 Chronicles. I I want you to keep your Bibles open because of time. I've got to point out several of these quickly. But the first perspective, we see it in 1 Samuel chapter 17. What is the perspective? It's an overwhelming perspective that I find I travel a lot. Did I tell you that? You already sense that a little bit, don't you? I travel a great deal. My wife is not with me today, by the way. She's in Franklin, Tennessee, where we live. Why did she not come with me today? Well, she's tired. Well, truth is, she teaches Sunday school, fifth grade Sunday school, and I honor that. She sings in the choir. I honor that. So that's where she is today. I teasingly tell her that she's a spiritual woman. When I go somewhere fancy like Spain or New York City or Hawaii, she always feels led to go. It's just amazing. Amazing woman. Why did I get off on that? I have no idea. But I do travel a lot. I'm all over the United States, obviously, all over the world. I don't mind telling you I had visited the White House at least a dozen times. I know President Barack Obama, President Bush, President Carter, President Clinton. I have been blessed to travel places I never imagined in my life that I would ever go. I've seen a lot. And I'm telling you there's an overwhelming perspective in our churches and in our land, and it's negative, it's defeatist, It has a lack of expectancy. We really are that way. In fact, we're the first generation, my generation, and younger, are the first American adult generation, plural, to truly believe that it's going to be worse for our children and our grandchildren. Every generation up to this point believed it was always going to get better. That belief is now gone. We believe it's going to be harder economically and societally and culturally for our children and our grandchildren. We see an overwhelming perspective of negativism, of pessimism, of defeat. And that was true in Israel also. In 1 Samuel 17, we come to a passage with which, some of which you are familiar. Because it's the story of David and Goliath. It's a story about a young man taking on a giant. But you need to understand, it took place in a place called the Valley of Elah. Now, I'm going to Israel again in December of this year, I've been there so many times, I can't count. I think two years ago I was there three times in one year. 
But as I go there, sometimes I go to the valley of Elah. It's south and west of Jerusalem. And look what happens as you look at chapter 17. Just look quickly at the third verse. It says, the Philistines occupied one hillside and the Israelites occupied another with the valley between them. And that's exactly the way it is to this day. Now going on down, look down at verse 10. What happens? Well, the Philistines are fighting the Israelites. You say, well, that's no news flash. They always fought the Philistines. Yes, they did. But this time it's different. This time the Philistines have a giant. Now, they have a lot of giants. But this guy is a formidable foe. He's big. Down south, you know what we would say? He's a big old boy. He's real big. Frightened. I'm over six feet tall. He was far taller than me. He had a spear as big as me. As tall as me. He is frightening them to death. And in verse 10, look what happened. The Philistines said... This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Send you out a man from among you that I might fight with him. I'm hearing this. Look at verse 11. What's the overwhelming perspective in Israel? Look at verse 11. I'm hearing the Philistines' words. Saul and all the Israelites were what? Terrified and dismayed. Wouldn't you agree? An overwhelming perspective of fear of defeat, of negativism. This giant scared them to death. Should they have been frightened? He was a special forces kind of guy. He was a Delta Force kind of guy. Yes. Who's going to stand in front of a man like that? Are there giants among us now that ought to frighten us? Yes. And I'm not talking about any one issue such as the one with which we've dealt this past week. There are many issues of complacency, of negativism, of immorality, of materialism. There's so much that afflicts us and affects us. I I deal with churches all the time, and I deal with pastor search committees. Praise God, you don't have one of those and don't need one. Pastor Jason, I know you love him, and we love Pastor Jason. But listen to me. Satan has a plan for your church. And I tell every pastor search committee, God has a plan, Satan has a plan. For your family, God has a plan, Satan has a plan. For your life, God has a plan. And whether you believe it or not, Satan does too. There are giants that are formidable. And we ought to be frightened by them. They seek to do us in. They seek to destroy us. These giants are energized by the evil one himself. And he has a plan. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that. Jesus said it in another place. One of my favorite verses, and I say that and laugh because every verse is my favorite verse. But in John 10.10, Jesus said, the thief has come to do what? To steal, to kill, and to destroy. He has come to steal and kill and destroy. It is His plan. It is His desire and he does it so well. Oh, by the way, one African-American pastor friend of mine called the next word in that verse the divine conjunction. I love that. But Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and life abundant. Oh, I like that. Oh, my friends, we see a negativism, a pessimism that pervades. There's another perspective I want you to hear today. It's extremely important. 
there's another perspective that you desperately need to know. It's found over in Second Chronicles chapter 20. You don't have time to read it. Just got to look at it, study it, do your homework. First Chronicles 20, something is very different. Israel's fighting the Philistines again. You say, there's nothing different about that. Nope. They fought them all the time. By the way, in modern-day Israel, where would the Philistines have been? Gaza. Is Gaza fighting even today? Yes. It's gone on for thousands of years. Philistia is modern-day Gaza in the southwestern quadrant of Israel. They were fighting once again. Another battle, another place. Not the Valley of Elah. They're fighting again. But something very different is taking place in First Chronicles 20. Look at verse 4. There's a battle in which an Israelite by the name of Elhanan, no, excuse me, Siphi, kills a Philistine giant named Sibachai. How about that? Now, if you're looking for names for children and grandchildren, this is not the place to get them. In verse 5, in another battle, an Israelite by the name of uh, Lahmi, excuse me, uh, a guy named Elhanan killed Lahmi, who was, interestingly enough, the brother of Goliath. And then in verses 6 and 7, Jonathan, not the friend of David, he's already dead at this point, but David's brother's boy, Jonathan, kills a giant with a rather interesting anatomical anomaly. The Bible says he had six fingers and six toes, 24 in all. What's happening in First Chronicles 20? I'll tell you what's happening. Everybody's killing a giant. It's as if they lined up and said, boys, I'm going to get me a giant today. Don't you get my giant. I've waited all day. I'm going to kill him. And they do. Everybody's killing giants in First Chronicles 20. But in First Samuel 17... Everybody's afraid of the giant. They hear me and hear me well. There's something very different in these two settings. I want you to answer me out loud. This is not a rhetorical question. If you know the answer, <laughs> that is. Who was the king in 1 Samuel 17? Saul. Answer this, yes, answer this yes or no. Was Saul a giant killer? Nope. Who's the king in 1 Chronicles 20? Do you know? David. Yes or no? Was David a giant killer? I want to be a giant killer. Listen to me. People will follow a man or a woman who stands up and does what's right. And kills the giants that face him. You hear me? I want to be a giant killer. And if a man or a woman stand up for what is right in a way that's right, God's people will follow. You want to be a leader? You be a giant killer. For example, in this current instance, in this current example, how do we respond to a culture, as I did to a young homosexual activist this morning on Facebook? How do you respond? Well, I know the young man. You know what I said to him? I love you. I love you. And he knows I do because I've shown it because I've known him for many years. I love him and I love his mom and his daddy. 
Even though he may hate me, I don't think he does. I love him. We will continue to speak the truth in love. We'll continue to love every man, woman, boy, and girl on the face of this earth. But as I said on CNN a couple of years ago, the worst form of love is to love somebody and not tell them the truth. Did you hear me? The worst form of love is to love someone and not tell them the truth. But we're in a culture that will not tell you the truth. We're in a culture that will not speak the truth. But we're continuing to fight the giants, but to do it in a spirit of love and kindness. But we will fight. We will fight. We will say, thus saith the Lord. There is a perspective that's different. It's one of victory. It's one of expectancy. It's one of faith. And we see it in First Chronicles chapter 20. And we see the difference because those who led were different. Now, what gave David the fortitude with which to fight and kill the giant? I've got to move quickly. Go back to 1 Samuel 17. I'll tell you what happened. David comes to the scene. Why? He was not in the army. He was too young. But Daddy said, go take some of Mama's cooking to the brothers who were in the army. Everybody knows army cooking's terrible. And so everybody liked Mama cooking. Well, my mama wasn't much of a cook, but maybe yours is. I hope so. So, David comes to bring some groceries to the brothers. As he approaches, I think he heard Goliath. Because Goliath came out day after day after day. In fact, 40 days. I believe he heard Goliath taunt Israel. And I believe he went to his brothers. And like good brothers who never get along, I think he said, Brothers, you should have done something about this. And I think being good brothers, they said, David, have you seen him? He's a big old boy. And I think David probably said something like this. Well, brothers, if somebody doesn't do something, I will. And I bet they said, go ahead. The Bible says he went to King Saul. King Saul, that man is making fun of God. Somebody needs to do something. Have you seen him, David? He's a big old boy. You're the king. You ought to go fight him. I'm not going to do it. If somebody doesn't do it, I will. About verse 38, King Saul said, Well, David, put on my armor, son. Listen carefully to me. The armor did not fit. Man's armor will never give us that which we need to see victory. I told you, you'll not find it in the courthouse, the White House, schoolhouse. You'll not find what you need to win the battles of this world. I'm the head of the Southern Baptist Convention, and I'm going to tell you, all the denominational resources we have will not fit us for the battle. All our seminary education, Ph.D., yes, I've got one of those. It will not give me what I really need to fight the battle. I'm not anti-education, believe me. I believe in it. But if you really want to know what will give you that which you really need to fight the battles in this world is found in David's response. Little David goes out without armor. He goes out and he stands in front of this giant of a man who could kill him with one hand, really. He picks up five round stones out of the creek bed of the Valley of Elah. He has a slingshot. You know the story. 
But do you remember what he said? This is where the key is found. In verse 45 and 46, he looks up, believe me, up into the giant's face and he says, You come against me with swords and spear and javelins. But I come against you in the name of the Lord God Almighty. And we live in a culture that laughs at that. We live in a culture that laughs at that. But I stand before you today and tell you I believe in the power of the name of the Lord God Almighty. He is our hope. He is the only one that will give us strength to fight and kill the giants. Oh, by the way, it does go on. You come against me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord God Almighty. And this day, the God whom you have defied will hand you over to me and I will strike you down and I will cut off your head. Woo! That's exactly what happened. Little David, the shepherd boy, killed a giant nine feet tall. There are many giants coming against us. There's a reason for fear and defeat. There can be a perspective of negativism and pessimism. But I stand before you today to say we have hope, living hope. We have hope in the name of the Lord our God. When suffering comes into your life, as it has in mine, you say, I believe in the power of the name of the Lord God Almighty. When societal forces rise up, some are horrible, such as racism, We say we will stand against you in the power of the name of the Lord God Almighty. When disunity comes into a church, we say we stand against it in the power of the name of the Lord God Almighty. When struggles come into your life, you say I stand against it in the power of the name of the Lord God Almighty. We either believe in it or we might as well go home. Paul said it in a different way in Ephesians 6 when he said, Finally, my brethren, stand firm in the Lord and in His mighty power so that you'll be able to take your stand when the day of evil comes. Put on the full armor of God. Finally, brethren, stand firm in the Lord and in His mighty power. Do you believe in the power of the name of the Lord God Almighty? I pray you do today. He's our only hope. He's our only hope and help. And we must commit our lives and you to Him today.